relatively short period of time, Christian Hebert has grown his Saskatchewan-based farming operation from around 3,500 acres to now nearly 30,000. You know, our farm's value prop is, is that we solve agriculture's puzzles. I don't really believe that there are new ideas in the world. I think that you just take puzzle pieces from everybody else and create the puzzle that works for you. Christian's background in accounting and his strategic mindset have certainly been assets to him. But he says it's the approach to building a team that has really been the key to success. You know, originally everyone kind of thought we were expanding because I cared about acres when I didn't feel that I could create the right team at a small acre number. If I only had one person working for me, their job description was kind of do whatever I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. And so I truly feel that as we got larger, I was able to have more specialization and that, you know, at least 80% of the time my crew can be doing what they enjoy doing and they're best at. And I don't think that matters if you're a kid or you're an adult or you're playing sports or you're going to work at a farm or recording podcasts. You do a way better job and you're way more efficient if you love what you're doing. We're talking farm business strategy with Christian Hebert on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode is brought to you by Sound Agriculture. Sound Ag's source product is a foliar applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and phosphorus. It works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use to wake up the soil, kind of like caffeine for microbes. You may recall hearing from SoundAg CEO Adam Lytle on episode 295, and I'm really thankful that they decided to advertise on the show. Make sure you take advantage of their performance optimizer to identify which fields will get the most out of source corn. Using key data, they can help you place the product more accurately and decide whether focusing on yield lift or nitrogen reduction will give you the best results. The low use rate, flexible application window, and tank mix compatibility make Source simple to apply. And Source guarantees performance. Activate what's already in your soil to improve your ROI at sound.ag. Thanks to Sound Ag for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Joining me on today's episode is Christian Hebert. Christian is the managing partner of Hebert Grain Ventures, a 30,000-acre grain and oilseed operation in southeast Saskatchewan. After a brief stint at accounting firm Myers Norris Penny, he came back to farming with a focus on profitability. He's a graduate of Texas A&M's The Executive Program for Agricultural Producers, or TPAP, which you're actually going to hear referenced a couple of times today. Danny Kleinfelter of TPAP, whose name will also come up during the interview, refers to Christian as one of the most progressive young farmers he knows. On top of all that, Christian's also the co-founder of online farm labor platform Workforce Hub, as well as Maverick Ag, providing custom design lending, accounting, and insurance solutions to producers. For this interview, I'm actually doing something I almost never do which is I'm splitting the interview up into two episodes because I just thought there was that much good content there worth your time. In part one that you're going to hear today, we'll talk about the financial lessons he learned from being a CPA that he now applies to his farm, the importance of building a team, dealing with landlords, how he's thinking about policy and sustainability, and more. And then next week, we're going to go over the operating system he uses to do all of this, as well as some of his views on ag tech. So 
I guess that's just a teaser for what you can listen to next week. Christian said that when he was growing up, he wasn't sure that he wanted to come back and farm full time. It wasn't until he fell in love with business that he started to see opportunities for him back at the family farm business. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where he's talking about what ultimately convinced him to leave his CPA job and to go full time with farming. I think there was a couple of things. So, I mean, I I was doing accounting for five to six years. I was lucky enough to be in a practice that I could still go grain farm in the summer with my family and be, be really involved and still rent a bit of land. But, you know, the unique part was I'd have 25 to 100 different files and clients I'd work with. And so it's kind of like farm management on steroids. I mean, people were paying me to clean up their books and then tell me all their problems and hope we could help them with them. Right. So, I mean, there aren't too many professions where you can learn like that. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but the best way to learn is usually from things that are bothering other people or mistakes you or someone else has made. And, and that's what creates experience and experience is what long-term creates knowledge and wisdom. So that, that was probably the biggest opportunity. I think the second was, you know, I, I had fallen in love with business while I was taking my commerce degree and, and I majored in accounting and finance, but really just business period, right? Everything from, you know, just understanding how working capital could run a business, even if it was low on equity and, and the ratios between debt and equity and, you know, how much lever you wanted to run and return you were comfortable with. And I think as I did more and more accounting, I realized how big that opportunity was on all those different levers in the world of agriculture and how because, you know, as a general consensus, farmers love growing crop. They don't necessarily like coming up with new ideas when it comes to risk management and financial management. The banks and the insurance companies have really, really not changed their policy on ag lending and ag insurance for for tens, twenties, even hundreds of years. And so I just saw some pretty large opportunities to use concepts that were being used in other industries in agriculture to to open some doors and hopefully solve some problems and challenges. Was there any specific kind of recurring problems that you saw that you thought you could solve if you kind of took your business acumen back to the farm? Yeah, I would say my most frustrating one was when a family would come in and the number one thing that was keeping them up at night was cash flow. They didn't have enough cash flow, right? And then so they couldn't pre-buy inputs. They weren't comfortable holding any grain. They had to sell it off the combine to meet cash flow. And and then we get going through their business and they'd be equity rich. They'd have four or five million dollars in equity. And they'd met with their banker and didn't come up with a solution. And like something as simple as a line of credit that was two or three hundred dollars an acre instead of a hundred. Or, you know, refinancing a section of land to put a million dollars back into the, the working cap would have solved all their problems and created rates of return that they couldn't even fathom. And instead they were, you know, they were having trouble sleeping at night because they couldn't make payroll and they were millionaires. It was just a simple financial strategy to fix it. And I think that was probably, you know, all the questions down that path were what probably kind of gave me the epiphany of, you know, I think we could maybe do things a little bit different. And it's kind of where we came up, you know, our farm's value prop is, is that we solve agriculture's puzzles. I don't really believe that there are new ideas in the world. I think that you just take puzzle pieces from everybody else and create the puzzle that works for you. You have to want to solve puzzles, though, which it sounds like that really gets you excited to go to work every day and solve those puzzles. It seems like there's a fair amount of the farming community that they want to solve other puzzles. You know, they they want to work on the machinery and, uh, you know, hop in a tractor. Are you finding as you've been out and helping other farmers solve these puzzles that maybe a lot of them aren't really in the right frame of mind to attack it the way you do? And I think that goes back to just looking at it like a business, right? I, I think... 
agriculture is an industry where we believe that bloodlines created leadership. And I mean, there's no correlation with that, or at least I haven't found it unless you have, right? There's definitely some correlation because, you know, if a business has a really strong leader and, and they mentor their child, there's a good chance that person might follow it. But I mean, I've seen a lot of farms where the dad's a heavy duty mechanic. And so the kid went to be a heavy duty mechanic or the dad's an agronomist. So the kid goes to be an agronomist. And then we wonder why a succession plan is difficult. Well, they're fighting over the same job. And there's only room for one of those at that farm. So I think our willingness to solve a puzzle was just from my my love of business and that I'm not a big believer in this, you know, spend 10,000 hours on what you're crappy at. No, do what you're good at and hire people to do everything else, right? So can I do some basic mechanic work? Absolutely, I can. Do I enjoy it? No, not really. So we have a full-time mechanic. He does a way better job than I ever would. He comes up with way better ideas, right? And and I just need to ensure that that we have a good capital plan and a repairs and maintenance budget that allows them to be successful. You know, I, I'm pretty good with people, but I realize that I'm actually better at kind of showing them where we're going to go and that I'm going to fix all the problems for us to get there. And that doesn't always work for everybody. But my farm manager came out of the world of, of grain buying and running grain elevators. And I mean, when he left, he had 10 locations and 100 unionized employees underneath him. So to come to my farm, when he started with four or five employees and now is, you know, 10 to 20, depending on the season, and he's got a green light or red light to hire and fire as he sees fits and how they fit the culture, that made his job easy for him. He's really good at it. And so I think that... That was probably the unique part is that, you know, I just look at it, do what you're really good at. And to be honest, you know, originally everyone kind of thought we were expanding because I cared about acres when I didn't feel that I could create the right team at a small acre number, right? I had to have a bunch of general. If I only had one person working for me, their job description was kind of do whatever I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. And so I truly feel that as we got larger, I was able to have more specialization and that you know, at least 80% of the time my crew can be doing what they enjoy doing and they're best at. And I don't think that matters if you're a kid or you're an adult or you're playing sports or you're going to work at a farm or recording podcasts, you do a way better job and you're way more efficient if you love what you're doing. Absolutely. And that's such a fascinating idea of growing to a scale where everyone can be in that position where they can do what they're specialized at, what they enjoy doing. So was that the vision from day one? Because I understand when you came back to the farm, what were you somewhere on 3,500 acres or somewhere around there? And today, you know, you're working towards 10xing. That is my understanding. Was that the vision that, hey, if we get larger, we can have this team where everyone is sort of thriving in their own unique role? So when I came home, so I'd have been 24-ish when I started full-time farming, 24, 25. And uh, I had just done TPAP down at Texas A&M and got to know Danny Kleinfelter really well. He still sits on my board of advisors and kind of for your listeners, if you haven't read every article the man's wrote, you need to sit down and read them. That's how good they are. But he was an academic that was able to kind of really explain things, how they affected the dirt on a farm and the management. My wife and I got married when we were 20 and 21 and and I was thinking about coming home full time then and I wrote down in our goals that I wanted an 8,000 acre farm. And the reason I wanted that is in Western Canada, an 80-foot drill, one sprayer, and two combines is the most efficient number of equipment units per acre to get your fixed cost down. And so at that time, no, I, I truly hadn't figured out people. I mean, I had a little bit because I had people working for me at the accounting firm and, and I played a lot of sports, but I would say that it was about a couple years into being back full-time and we had expanded, you know, to 5,500, 6,000 acres at that time and we were hiring a few other people and that's probably when I kind of figured out that running a business really isn't any different than a really good hockey team. 
you don't need all the best goal scorers in the world. You need the people that are the best at their position. But more importantly, they don't even have to be the best at their position. They just have to be really good at their position, buy into the team culture, and do what they're good at, and stay in their own role. Don't fight over who's going to do what. Once I got that through my head that we wanted to build a culture like a hockey team, not a corporate pyramid, then my head really started to, to kind of come to the realization that equipment is a fixed cost. People are an investment, not a cost. But the only way to minimize your fixed costs is actually to have the most efficient people investment you've ever had because they're the people that actually optimize all your fixed costs. And so I would say that was I was probably home for three or four years right when we kind of got to that 8,000 acres looking to go to 10, 11, which was going to be, I had to decide because in my mind, 8,000 acre blocks are still the most efficient for me. So if we're not going to be at eight, I'm making the decision to go to the next multiple of eight right then, even though we're not there. And that that's when I really probably sat down and said, you know, as a farmer, I think, I think we're really good at finding work. We've never ran out of work. I'm not sure we could. But we're not so good at finding people. We usually find lots of work, we burn out, and then we hire the first person that applies. And it was at that time that I decided, no, every time we find good people, let's hire them. And then we'll go find work. And so at the speed we hire people is the speed that we try to get to the next multiple of 8,000. And we realize that the people are actually what allow us to minimize fixed costs, not necessarily the acres. So in mean, this last year, we expanded, you know, as a net expansion right around 6,000 acres, and we didn't hire anybody. It got closer to the multiple of 8,000. The team was probably the best functioning team we've ever had. And so our, our fixed costs cratered, right? They're 6,000 into 24,000 acres. So, I mean, we had a, a significant drop in fixed costs and yet executed as good as we ever have. All right. So many questions on that. So, you know, a big part of your job is casting the vision. And I know like for the corporate ladder, the way they get ambitious people is they say, hey, you can climb this ladder. You get in and you climb the ladder. For a farm, it's a little bit different. It's like this may be your role for a long, long time. What is the vision you can cast for those talented people to help them see that this is a good place for them? I completely agree with you. I guess that's part of the other reason why we grow, right? Is that, you know, if you started with me when we were 3,500 acres and now we're 30,000, you've grown in your role just by the growth of the operation. And I'm a firm believer, I'm not, I don't really like to hire, you know, high level people and plunk them into my crew, you know, for missing a skill set, I will, but it, in general, I'd rather mentor and coach the better crew members to become the next level of managers, et cetera. So, I mean, now when we expand, I mean, you know, I'll get a phone call every month for some sort of an opportunity, but especially the big ones, this last one at 6,500 acres. Oh yeah. We had a team meeting before I said, yes, called them all in, said, I don't need more acres, right? Like, I'm 39 years old. I got a couple of kids playing hockey and that love horses. I can't work any more than I currently work. Do you guys want it? Do we want to do it? Everybody voted yes. I think if I said tomorrow that we were done taking expansion opportunities, now they know that I'm not, in no way will I chase acres. I don't go run up rents. I don't really even phone people about land. But when it comes to us, if I got to the point where my answer was no, half my crew would quit. Because they're addicted to the challenge of, of the world saying we can't do this, of the puzzle can't be completed. And that, that's kind of one of the visions, right? Is that, you know, we solve puzzles. We, we respect the past, but we grow the future. And if we're not growing, we're actually dying, right? And it was easy to keep up to a one and a half to 3% inflation rate for a growth rate, but the next, the next few years growth rate might have to be a little higher. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like to get there from what you're saying, 
there's no new ideas, right? The ideas are pretty ubiquitous. And if you assume that all the other farmers in the area want to grow as well, at some level, there's some competition for acres. And so it sounds like your competitive advantage really is the people. Yep. Yep. People. And I, and I think how we deal with people, right? So, I mean, even landlords, I mean, we have two or three different strategies. So, I mean, something as simple as usually when I'm negotiating a new, a new package. So we own about half our land and rent half our land. Some of our lands are rented on 15 year deals, which would put me till 51 from when I signed it. Right. And it has, it has five year check marks, but most of our lands pretty long term. So there's two types of landlords we deal with. The one or more investment type landlords that own big blocks. And I find them pretty simple to deal with because it's pure business, right? Where the other ones are more the retiring farmer. And usually I sit down with both them and their wife and something as simple as I pay my land rent monthly. And uh, if I don't ever make a payment, you got to give me a verbal warning at day 15 and on day 30, you can take it away even if the crop's growing. And they say, well, geez, like that's pretty risky. I said, no, the only risk I have is I can only set my automatic withdrawal from my bank for three years. And if we don't put it in the calendar to turn it back on, on month 37, you're going to phone me, right? But you should see a farm spouse who her whole life has been worried about cash flow and the balloons in their bank account think, so like 6,500 a month is just going to come in on the first of every month? Yeah. Well, I guess unless you want it all in November. But I, I think that's the one thing is with landlords, we ask them, what do you want? Do you want a 15-year deal? Do you want monthly cash flow? You know, our, our backgrounds in accounting, most retirements get rushed and there's a huge tax bill. And I mean, the one, the one thing that unites farmers is uh, we all agree that none of us want to send more money to Biden or Trudeau. You can have that discussion of different ways to help them move from full-time farming to semi-retirement to retirement. And so it, it really is dealing with landlords as a partner, no different than we deal with our employees as a team. They're not employees. They're part of my hockey team. Yeah. And in order to do that, I love that example with the landlords of paying, you know, in the first of the month, every month, in order to do that, you've really had to figure out your own cash flow. And it sounds like from your accounting experience, that was one of the biggest issues that you saw other farmers struggling with. For those, what are the first steps that they need to do to help reverse that problem of never having the cash? Yeah, I, I mean, one of the easiest steps we took is I turned the majority of our business into monthly bills. So other than seed fertilizer and chemical, fuel, we probably have more quarterly than monthly. But other than those four, everything on our farms monthly, our machinery payments are all monthly, our employee, everything is monthly, our rents monthly. And so we don't see the huge swings maybe on a month to month basis that that some farms see. So your burn rate is a lot more known, right? Then it's just back calculating you know, when are you going to have those big payment times for seed, fertilizer, and chem? And you have two options. One, you need to sell grain to have it paid for. Or two, you need to have the financing in place to be able to do it and not have to pay for it. But don't decide that the day you're going in to write the check to the retail, right? So we kind of have a rolling 18-month budget that as long as my grain sales kind of match what we expect, you know, I already know that this actually February this month was an extremely tight month for us. Because I had pre-bought all of my inputs, you know, in July last year, and we were holding a whole bunch of grain into March because that's when the market told us to hold it till. So, I mean, I think we got three and a half million dollars of grain going out in March. Well, that, you know, we run about an eight to nine million dollar line of credit. That, that's a big chunk of my line of credit that I had to hold until March, right? So, I, I think going to monthly is one thing. I think having a plan, I really enjoy kind of rolling 18-month budgets that you check to actual every month to see what the variance is and is it something you can manage or is it just timing? And then I think lastly, you know, we changed how our debt is calculated. So, I mean, 
most farms, your land equity is tied into almost every loan you have. So in our farm, our land buys land, our buildings buy buildings, our machinery buys machinery, and our operating debt is 100% backed by you know my personal guarantee and an insurance contract. It doesn't take any equipment, building, or land equity into calculation. And my personal guarantee, most of my land's buried in companies and family trusts, so it's not worth a whole bunch in my personal name. But the insurance side really backs our operating line. And just being able to look at how levered you are in each of those four categories, you know, it gives me comfort. I got a weekly scorecard, you know, and if that number's on there, what percent levered I am in each of the four asset categories versus a whole farm. And that's kind of how I manage the farm. We have working capital percentage. You know, we have what I want for a return on invested capital and we have how levered we are in those four categories. And that, that kind of lets me know where we're sitting at all times. What about on the the value add side of, of agriculture? You know, you have these entrepreneurial ventures. Have you looked at, hey, could I capture more of the the food dollar, so to speak, by doing any sort of value add type ventures on, on top of the crops that I'm producing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're excited to see that Saskatchewan especially has been investing a lot of money privately and publicly in canola crushing capacity, right? Canada has a real weakness of just shipping raw commodities all over the world and not so much doing so much value add. You know, on our farm specifically, I think we're, we're working our way towards of basically having our own elevator one day. I, th- I think there's significantly more money in, in grading and blending than most of us farmers want to believe. In the U.S., I think that's a lot more prevalent. You know, some of the larger farms will virtually have their own elevator system and buy and store grain, etc. So we're working on that type of idea. And then because of kind of my background and skill set, I would say our value add has been more on the consulting side through Maverick and working on partnerships and collaborations with some big companies to better the education of financial and risk management. And I mean, we've we've thrown around the idea of of kind of starting a farmer coach academy or the 5% farm academy that, you know, a couple days each quarter or three times a year, a group of farms comes in and, and maybe some of these bigger companies are actually paying for their seats. And, and we're doing one or two days of education that comes from, you know, a, a group of consultants that are actually doing what they're talking about every day. I think that's another, you know, weakness in agriculture sometimes is a lot of the consultants either haven't done any of this on a farm or to be honest, went bankrupt farming and then turned into a consultant. And so, you know, I I think that's a bit of a unique perspective that we have is that our group of consultants at Maverick and, you know, and I oversee them and my CFO leads it. It's pretty hands-on with what we're doing and what's working and what's not working and where we've screwed up and, and our relationships with the banks and some of the multinationals. I think it would be a comfortable learning, you know, group for those more progressive farmers out there. And I don't think there's a lot of opportunities for that. There's a lot of farm shows, right? And and maybe somewhere you go listen to good speakers, but there isn't a, hey, you know, you sign up for this this program and you're gonna have to use five to six days of your year. We'll do it on trimesters because that works good for farms. But you know, the first module is gonna be on ratios and, and financial planning. And when you're done here, you're gonna get sent home with four or five templates to put your own financial statements in that you're gonna understand. We're not just going to talk at you. We don't want you to have to come to this for 20 years. I mean, we hope you do because that means we're coming up with new ideas all the time. But you shouldn't have to come to the same module again. That type of a mentality. And you you mentioned calling it the 5% Coaching Academy or something like that. But can you talk about the 5% idea? Yeah. So, I mean, that one's it's stolen from Danny Kleinfelter. I mean, he was supposed to come give a speech up in Canada, I don't know, 15 years ago, probably now. And, and he... Uh, I remember correctly, he was out trimming the hedge for his wife, Vicky, and he fell off the ladder. 
And so I was going to meet him up in Saskatoon to have a visit. And he phones me and says, hey, uh, you want to go give the speech for me? And I said, no, not really. Not at all. It's in three days. And I hadn't done much public speaking. You know, I had done lots in school, but not since we were running the farm. And, and he said, well, you know, when you were down in, at TPAP, you really grabbed onto this 5% rule. This small changes have big results. So he said, why don't you write a speech on my 5% rule? And he sent me some data and we pulled a bunch out of our own farm. And so that, you know, we kind of created it. And I mean, for two or three years there, I was probably given the speech 20 or 30 times a year across kind of North America. And it, it just kind of hit home. And the basis of it is, is, you know, don't look for unicorns to win at business, right? I mean, did Jeff Bezos find a unicorn? Sure. Did Zuckerberg? Sure. But those are one in a million. If you have a good business, there's a whole bunch of little changes you can make to make astronomical differences in your in your bottom line, right? And so the, the example I always used to use because it was easy math was a 5% change, you know, in a 40 bushel canola crop is two bushels. So do you think you can find a way to grow two more bushels? And everyone would, you know, would say yes. And this was back when canola is only worth 10 bucks. So you'd be like, can you find a way to sell your canola for 50 cents more? Yeah, yeah, no, I can do that. You know, and then if you take your fixed costs at the time, we'd say, could you find a way to save 5% in fixed costs? And, you know, back then it calculated that that was about a 16 or $17 an acre savings. But the issue was, is in Canada, the benchmark for farms was a $50 an acre profit. And, and I mean, for some comparison to the US, you got to remember at the time in Canada, the average acre was probably only worth $1,500 or $2,000 an acre, right? So it's all comparable. But if, if you grew two more bushels and sold it for 50 cents more and dropped $17 off your fixed costs, your profit actually went from $50 to 107 So it was north of 100% change in your profitability. And so it's how those compounding changes, right? When you're in an acre type business that's a commodity business, if you can find little changes on how to grow revenue and reduce fixed costs, it compounds over every acre. And when you compound and multiply it, like I said, you can take three, 5% changes that some people would say should only change my business by 15%. And it was north of 100% change in your profitability. Incredible. Yeah. Well, the two concepts I'm kind of really focused on here in the, in the coming months on the show, number one is, is farm strategy, which we've talked a lot about. But number two is the external forces, I guess I'll call them, that will shape the future of agriculture. So not coming from farmers, but coming from consumers who also happen to be voters. As you think about that, you know, what external forces are you sort of thinking about in the coming decade that could change, you know, your business in a way? Yeah, so I mean, that's funny when I talk about, you know, when I do my presentations on financial and risk management, the only risk that makes me nervous, because I'm not even sure I know what stress feels like, so I use nervous, is policy. I can plan for Mother Nature. I can plan for humans. I can plan for water. It's really tough to plan for policy. To the point that we actually hired a, a contract PR person on the farm to help us start doing a better job of telling our story in the world of policy. We've done a pretty good job with the multinational companies. I mean, most of the big ag companies I could talk to who I want to talk to and have a discussion on whether I like or don't like what they're doing. But we never had focused much on politics, whether that be local, provincial, or federal, right? Or North American. And I think it's really important. So, I mean, what are some things that, you know, make me nervous is let's use the topic of carbon. I mean, I was in Belgium talking about it prior to COP26, and there weren't very many progressive farmers at COP26 that had center stage. And so I think deep down, we all want to think that, you know, the world of carbon and, and the green economy is 
it's going to slow down because eventually someone's going to say, hey, China and Russia, you need to be held accountable before a farm is. But our voters in North America don't vote on what happens in China and Russia. They vote on what happens here. And they currently feel that it's really important. So, I mean, I think we need to do a way better job of telling our story of we are some of the most sustainable businesses in the world. I mean, sustainability has been a value on farming practices and agriculture for centuries. It's one of the only businesses where it's like basically in your genetic code to improve your land, improve your financials, to be able to hand it off to the next generation. It will never be sold. That means you have to be sustainable. You don't try to do things to wreck your land. You don't try to do things to be less profitable. And now all of a sudden it's turned into a marketing term, right? Sustainability, regenerative. So we need to do a better job of everything we're doing right. Because currently the trend is for carbon to all go towards practice-based incentives. So let's come up with a baseline and then let's, you know, give dollars for nitrogen inhibitors or cover crops or, you know, lots of different ideas when we basically already control the biggest greenhouse in the world in the Midwest, you know, US and and Western Canada. We probably sequester, if they actually showed us all the data and we went through it together, we we sequester more carbon than we emit already. Now, can we be better? Absolutely we can. But let's get some comparables out there right now of, you know, the average farm family. If you have, you know, let's use a farm in in Saskatchewan, call it a 2,500 acre farm. Here's how much carbon it's currently sequestering with its crop mix. And let's compare that to a family of four in downtown Calgary or downtown Detroit. So that we can have a logical conversation of what everybody can do to improve it. But at the same time, I mean, I think there's an opportunity for carbon to become part of my crop rotation. If we do a good job of this, I might sell more carbon in the next 10 years than I sell crop. And that's an opportunity. And I think if we work it correctly through the the policy side, I mean, is there a better way to revitalize rural economies in both Canada and the U.S. than carbon? I think it's a phenomenal way because... Farms spend all their money locally. We buy our groceries locally, our kids go to school locally, we buy our fertilizer locally, we buy our equipment locally. It's 100% spent locally, basically. And so any increase in farm income is basically directly into the, the rural farm economy. But if we do a bad job of it, the food companies and the government are going to get all the money. And that worries me. That's kind of my one trend of policy that I'm a bit nervous about. And then I think, you know, I, I follow Peter Zeehan pretty closely. And I don't know if you follow him, but he's a geopoliticist. I really like, he wrote Disunited Nations and the Absent Superpower. And and I think this, you know, even with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now, I mean, I think the world of commodities, i.e. energy and agriculture is going to be the thing that causes conflict in the world. And that's a little bit scary, right? Because we don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. I mean, I, I trade commodities pretty extensively as part of our marketing plan. And and I haven't wanted to be in the market since the day Russia started in the, you know, the invasion. The commodity markets have been swinging 60 cents to $1.05 every single day. That's millions of dollars on a farm. And so, yes, we want some volatility because it creates profitability, but it needs to be consistent, right? And these large swings in commodity indexes and input indexes really make managing a farm stressful and difficult for a lot of people. And so, if I kind of use Peter Zeehan as someone that I, you know, that I believe in some of his philosophies is that, you know, we need the world to figure out who's going to be big brother again, because right now everyone's kind of looking for that or fighting over who it is. And that's causing a lot of volatility in in a lot of areas of our lives. But especially if you're in the world of commodities that are, you know, supply and demand is a global issue. 
COVID showed us we have a supply chain issue and the current, you know, volatility is showing us that global demand and global supply can really affect our local markets. Well, thanks so much to Christian Hebert for sharing so many insights and nuggets of wisdom on today's show. Definitely a great episode for really anyone interested in agriculture or business or both, but especially for you farmers out there. Like I said, at the top of the show, Christian will be back next week talking about the operating system he uses to do all of this on a day-to-day basis, as well as some of his views on ag tech and the future of ag. So make sure you're subscribed and stay tuned for that one. In the meantime, you can learn more about what he's doing in a few different places, including ChristianHebert.com, HebertGrainVentures.com, and MaverickAg.com. And I'll make sure I link to each of those in the show notes for you as well. I want to do more of these conversations with strategic, forward-looking farmers and ranchers about how they're approaching their business and thinking about the future of agriculture. So if you know producers that are thinking in an unconventional way, very strategically business-minded, uh, I would welcome a recommendation. So feel free to email me at tim at aggrad.com. Now, that isn't an open invitation for any podcast guest because I get flooded with recommendations of different companies that should be featured. I'm not asking for that. I'm specifically asking for individual farmers or ranchers that are thinking strategically and unconventionally about the future of agriculture. So thanks so much for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with round two with Christian, another story of ag innovation. 